Views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the beast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas, with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanna Nalaya, and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is December 16th, 2015. Lawmakers in Massachusetts want prisoners to pay room and board. And the Senate Minority Leader Bruce Tars, a Republican from Gloucester, latest proposal, inmates would have to pay $2 a day for their food and housing. They would have two payment options, coughing up the money after they re-enter society or using money earned through prison labor. You heard it right. Work for slave wages so they can take it right back prison in debt to the state. The Prison Policy Initiative released its report laying out the numbers in mass incarceration, the whole time 2015. We'll examine the numbers. Using a tactic straight out of the Black Code Circuit 1866, four students at Tennessee... Uh, Max, I hate to interrupt you, bro, doing the intro. This will be the first time, but... We, I don't know what happened to your audio all of a sudden, man. Your audio just started talking, sounding like you're talking into a tin can. And, I mean, it's like I could barely hear what you're saying. We are joined by Johanan, the uh, other co-host and producer. Uh, Johanan, let's get an audio check on you. Peace to the abolitionists. All right. You sound great, bro. Uh, glad you could join us tonight, Max. Uh, let's see if we resolved your issues. Um, Max. Is that anybody right there? Uh, no, it's not. I don't know what happened. Hmm. Yeah, you might want to try to call us from a phone. Uh, Max, call in from a cell phone uh, if you have one available. But your audio just just went out at the beginning of the program, and we tried to resolve those issues earlier. Obviously. Uh, we we can't resolve them now, but um, we'll me and Johanan will be looking for you to call in from another line on the conference line. Just hit star six and one so I can identify your line. Uh, apologies, bro, but we we can't do a program like that. Well, I'm glad I was able to get in on time tonight. It's been uh, it's been real hectic, man. Just the last uh, couple of months, actually. So I mean, I appreciate y'all's patience with. You know, uh, working around my schedule with the major changes that have occurred in my scheduling and, and, uh, 
still letting me, you know, be a part of the program when I haven't been able to be here on time and sound check and, you know, ready to roll or whatever. Y'all still been letting me get a, get a word in, so I appreciate that. But it's good to be here on time tonight. And uh, seeing Max is going through some stuff that I know is frustrating on his end, but he'll get it worked out. Um, where was he at in the intro? I can keep on going. Uh, we're talking about he was mentioning the prison policy initiative, uh, released this report laying out the numbers in mass incarceration. Uh, it's a report called The Whole Pie 2015. So, of course, we're going to go over those numbers. Um, uh, using a tactic straight out of the Black Code, circa 1866, four students at a Tennessee at Tennessee Boulevard Central High School were charged with indecent exposure for reportedly wearing sagging pants to school in November, and two of the students were uh, jailed for this offense. <clears throat> Excuse me. In oral arguments Wednesday uh, for a Supreme Court affirmative action case, Justice Anton uh, Scalia a well-known critic of affirmative action, suggested that the policy was hurting minority students by sending them to schools too academically challenging for them. Basically, he was just saying black children are too dumb for white schools. Representing a group of black pastors, Bishop E.W. Jackson, which may be one of the people uh, Scalia was referring to, it actually is a, a little slow, uh, he says police are an absolute necessity for the safety of law-abiding citizens in the community. And so call and so calling them pigs in a blanket and saying insulting things only serves to make things less safe for the average black person that is not out here committing crimes. Secondly, that the Black Lives Matter groups are disgraceful, demonic, and evil. Also saying that the fact that literally every year thousands of black men are dying in the streets and black on black crime is completely ignored by Black Lives Matter. We're gonna talk about this living in a bubble, white Jesus. Slave master loving ignorance tonight. <laughs> um, Max was mentioning to to the listening audience, of course, he's getting reorganized and set up in his new home. Um, he's got the America's Ferguson series on lock. If you've been following the program for the, for most of this year, uh, it's a series that we've been doing every week, and that's that's a hundred percent Max Parthas uh, researching and reporting week in week out. I mean, I've, I've personally have grown spoiled to listening to his, I mean, he's just so thorough with everything he can get about the state's information pertaining to modern day slavery, uh, patterns and practice of racial profiling, race-based policing, uh, industry set up by the state and the federal government uh, in, co in cooperation with corporations to, uh, to put black folks, in particular people of color, non-whites, poor whites, behind bars and use them for slave labor. So, uh, we're going to miss that segment tonight, <clears throat> but we'll have a little bit more news to cover it. Um, and then let's see here. This week's rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is George Allen Jr., who was exonerated January 18, 2013 in St. Louis after serving 30 years in prison for the murder of Mary Bell, who was a court reporter. Allen was convicted based in part on the false confession. Uh, were police, or oh, and then also what they call police, quote unquote, uh, tunnel vision, and blood type evidence that was said to include Allen, but actually eliminated him as a possible contributor. So there's 30 years of your life, gone, sir. But we'll be talking about him as our Underground Railroad uh, rider of the Underground Railroad of the 21st century. He made it himself, made it on out of the plantation. Uh, in honor of the past week's events pertaining to the celebration of the 13th Amendment's 150th anniversary. Our abolitionist and profile tonight is Frederick Douglass, 1818-1895, who, of course, uh, 
called the Emancipation Proclamation a stupendous fraud. Uh, one of my personal favorite reads and a, a favorite of the abolitionist movement to read that and kind of get people in check on what he knew even back then about what a lot of this was. So, of course, expect all that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. We invite you to join the conversation by calling us at 1-641-715-3660. That's 1-641-715-3660. Extension is 549-032-POUND. You press star 6 when you get in. And if you want to comment, you can press 1. You'll be in the caller's queue. Uh, Scotty Reed, the engineer here, will see uh, your, your number pop up in there, and we'll get you on the line with any questions, comments, uh, anything you want to bring to the table tonight. So, okay, we got the intros out. We know what's going on with Max, and we're waiting for him and, to get um, back in there. Also, uh, a new thing that we're adding, um, well, this is not really new, but um, for those who um, – have trouble remembering all of those numbers and you're not tuned in from the black talk radio network uh which you can find at blacktalkradionetwork.com and uh you can call us on the studio line which is 704 that's 704-951-5030 i'll see you buzzing in and we'll get you your comments or your questions on air um, and then uh, a new way, something we're integrating. Uh, this is our first video cast of New Abolitionist Radio. I have been using it for Black Talk Radio News, but this is the first time tonight that we're broadcasting New Abolitionist Radio through the Blab.im account, which we hope to open up, um, you know, this uh, channel uh, to other abolitionists who want to you know, uh, get something off their chest in terms of 21st century slavery and human trafficking. And of course, during the live broadcast, um, you can also chime in via the video chat. But a lot of times people don't want to be seen, uh, um, especially on video and when they are, you know, really telling us how they feel and they don't want their employer to see them and whatnot and be like, I'm going to fire you, <laughs> you know, because you exposing the company for practicing slavery. So, you know, y'all can call in and not show your face at 704-9515-030. And, of course, the conference line. All right, uh, go ahead and uh, continue, Johanna. What are we going to well, tackle uh, first? All right, well, we can go into uh, the story from Think Progress. Uh, we're talking about Massachusetts planning to force state prisoners to pay their own room and board, which is uh, par for the course, quite honestly and sadly. This is uh, this is the way it's going, you know. They're going to make these slaves pay for their own beds and for their own food. And we've reported, I mean, just to kind of set the story up, uh, we've reported for so many years on this program how the living conditions are literally inhumane in pretty much every uh, city, uh, municipality, state, county facility, state facility, federal facility, detention facility, or pretty much any kind in this country, for the most part, I, I think it would be safe to say the vast majority have already been found to be in violation of civil rights uh, 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 requirements, human rights laws that are already on the books. I mean, this is well documented. So to pay people to stay in inhumane uh, living conditions is ridiculous. And then we know that the care the food we've talked about Airmark, one of the one of the uh, largest uh, pri uh, private and uh, state and federal prison uh, food providers. Of course, on the outside of prisons, Airmark enjoys 
a wonderful reputation for being a food service company that provides food for corporations and corporate events, for public school systems in different states. Aramark has got a good reputation all around the country uh, for what they do in public, but what they do behind the scenes, poisoning, literally poisoning incarcerated people, uh, shipping out food to these facilities where there's mold and uh, rats, uh, rat turds and all kind of uh, infestations or whatever and all the food products and then in the pots and pans they use to cook it, the staff that they hire to uh, to prepare the food and to carry these things into these facilities. Some of them have been fired for uh, sexual uh, relationships with guards and inmates in facilities. Some have been fired and some have even been prosecuted, if I'm not mistaken, for being caught up in conspiracies to carry out uh, attacks against uh, inmates at different facilities. So you'll have an Airmark employee virtually there bringing the food in, getting paid by a guard or by an inmate at one facility to go to another facility and attack somebody that they don't like to set the other facility. The people have carried this out. This has happened. So uh, the food we know and the food services is out of control. Um, but yet and still with all this, Massachusetts is getting ready to start charging uh, the modern day slave inmates to uh, to pay for the privilege to, to get treated like this. So, And this isn't Bingham just Rock prisoners. Yeah, this What's is that, a, is that Max? A, a $2 a freaking day. Oh, Max Parth is back, everybody. Yeah, yeah, I'm on a cell phone right here sitting outside. Okay. Yeah, what I was yes, going to say is saying, this man. isn't the first time I've heard, you know, the ideal of even charging prisoners. And this doesn't just apply. They're not talking about the prisons. Are they talking about the prisons and the jails or one or the other? You know, because in some states it's going on in both places. But this isn't a new ideal that has been floated out there by those so-called tough on crime uh, types. And really all they're doing is is creating repeat customers. Like the private prison enslaver, the GEO group talks about during their, you know, uh, quarterly uh, earnings calls and, and whatnot. And so this is perfect mousetrap. That way, when it comes time to release you, well, you got a bill. You know, you got this bill and you, you know, can't pay it off, obviously, with the slave wages that we paying you. And so, you know, you got to stay and then work that off as well. Work off your fines and in, in, in the pay for your stay. So that's all it is, is right. building the, the more perfect slave trap, if you will. At $2 a day, you're talking about about $700 a year uh, that they have to pay. Now, a lot of people are in these prisons and jails because they couldn't afford to pay $700 for a fine. So now you're going to throw another $700 a year on top of them. And if, God forbid, they spend five years in prison and can't work, that means they're going to come out thousands of dollars in debt. And guess where they're going to end up right back at because they can't pay these fines. Right. It's bad enough that you're arresting them for profit, that you're making money on their arrest, that at least a dozen people cash a paycheck every time a set of handcuffs go on. But in addition to that, now you're going to make them pay you to be in there. And it's not, you know, some uh, $30 a day hotel thing. We're talking about nickel and diamond people to death. $2 a day. But they look at it like this. We got a couple hundred thousand people in this state in prison or in these two states or whatever. Uh, add that up together and we got millions of dollars. You know what I'm thinking, Max? I'm thinking that, you know, this is how when we look at states like Louisiana, for example, and uh, other states that are in contracts with private prison corporations like 
uh, Correction Corporation of America. Um, this is a way for them to, I guess, since they're looking at losing money in some of these contracts, if they don't keep the jails filled at that 90% capacity in these contracts they've signed with uh, CCA. And so then, therefore, you know, I guess they're going to pass on, you know, the um, cost to the prisoner uh, themselves. I, I, I don't know, I man. I'm trying to look at it this through through every angle, but it's just absurd, man, that you expect people that you are punishing to then pay for their incarceration when, you know, you're not providing them. It would be different if you was providing them with rehabilitation services. You know what I'm saying? To where they were actually, you know, getting job skills or trade skills while they were in there. But some of them, many of them, and, and obviously we're talking about the prisons where they are farmed out to corporate America to do, you know, customer service calls or pick produce or depending upon uh, uh, where, where they are at. And and so then when they get out, you know, these companies won't even hire them or, or give them a job. So, I mean, it's just it's just bad, man, all the way around. And so I, I just don't see the point in making people pay two dollars a day for their stay in the jail, especially like last week. We was looking at a couple of stories where I think it was determined unconstitutional to put people in jail because they can't pay fines. So, yeah, that was Alabama we were talking about that's ending that now. But I don't think that this is some kind of way they're using to make up for losses. I think this is standard operating pr uh, procedure. If you just way look to generate at the more revenue aspect for children's toys, for instance. When selling children's toys, uh, the companies will hire professionals and spend millions of dollars with psychologists, child psychologists, just to find out how they can squeeze an extra nickel out per purchase from each child. An extra nickel, because all those nickels right. add up to millions and millions. And right. we see them do this with JPay. We see them do it with every single aspect of the industrial complex. Right now, <clears throat> an example would be me when I called up my son, <clears throat> and I told you guys a story about that, and they docked him half his month's pay when he was working in the bakery uh, because he tried to give a Zeppeli to his brother. And they considered that theft of property. Now, he was only making uh, 37 cents or something like that an hour, and they docked half his month's pay. Now, if he was paying $2 a month, he'd be in debt. I mean, $2 a day, he'd be in debt right now. He couldn't afford it. Well, But, yeah, they would nickel and dime you to death, and that's standard operating procedure. And not only do they get the criminals, or let's not even say criminals, not only do they get the incarcerated, they get the families the same way. My daughter just today had to call a young brother that helped us move into this house two weeks ago. And a week after he helped us move, he went to jail over probation violation for a bad urine test. <laughs> so she just called him today at a cost of $18 to speak to him. So they haven't implemented the um, new regulations then because the FCC just um, uh, made a ruling to where they capped it and they couldn't you know, be gouging the families like that. So, um, and, and where are your sons in state or federal? They're in, uh, well, one's in the state prison and the other one is in the county jail right now. He's about to head towards the halfway house. You know, that's also included in, in the, in the, um, justice is not for sale act 2015 to regulate that. But see again, and, and are we talking about, I don't have a story in front of me. Are we talking about a private prison? Or jail, or are we talking about a county? 
You're talking about the state prison system. Okay. Uh, because, right. and, and you know, this is their way to get their foot in the door. Obviously, they just need to set a precedent with some kind of way of successfully doing this. And then, you know, it'll it'll matriculate through the entire system, no doubt. I mean, they just need to get a precedent at this point. If they can get the state to agree, you know, to do this, like Max said, $2 a day, then it'll 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 go throughout the entire system. But what I'm trying to understand is how it's seen as some kind of way saving the state money when the states are getting federal money to help subsidize this on one end. The states are taking part in collecting cash from corporations for making the labor available. We've talked about 37 states with legislation on the books to encourage corporate labor to come in, like courting corporations to come to their state and take advantage of the labor. So where are they, so quote-unquote, losing money? They take money out of the state budget for education. An example, in my state, right. Kansas, they've taken billions of dollars away from the education. Kansas used to have like one of the top education budgets in the country, top schools in the country for many years throughout the 90s, definitely, early 2000s. Their budget is, is wrecked now, but we have more prisons and more money going towards the prisons. So how is $2 a day going to do anything other than, like Scotty said, create a, just a perfect trap for these people not to be able to get out? And from the story, I just want to read a quote. Uh, it says, uh, the uh, uh, Massachusetts rep and co-sponsor of the bill, Lenny Mira, who's uh, from West Newbury, says the plan has two purposes. Saving money and teaching responsibility. Here we go with this again. I mean, seriously, this is exactly the same what they had to say in Ferguson. And then when they showed what was going on in Ferguson, the judges and court clerks forgiving fines and traffic tickets and DUIs and all kind of mess people was doing that was their friends. White, powerful business owners got money, got influence, got the right connections. Forgiving their debts, forgiving their violations, no fine, no traffic ticket, no court date, no jail time. But you're telling these poor people they need to learn responsibility. This is a quote out of his own mouth. This would help cover the state's corrections costs, but also put prisoners on a path of responsibility and sustainability, he said. It's a small oh, wow. amount of money, but it's about teaching them the basic things we want every prisoner to learn before they go back into society. So that's See, how you sell it. That respect this is their respectability politics bull. You you act as though you you act as though you went into Africa, you went into other foreign places that where indigenous people was living and minding their own business, kidnapped them and enslaved them because they was being bad some kind of way. And this is the same behavior we see now. You act like these people are doing something bad and so wrong that they deserve to be locked up. And you got all these damn fool people believing this, and now you're pushing off how you need to charge these people for this. How far does the corruption need to go before the average American citizen wakes up like, wait, 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 this, this, this ain't right? Well, you know, we did Massachusetts as Ferguson, so we know what they're dealing with out there. Right. We're talking about an 8% African-American community that is being <laughs> incarcerated at a rate of 9 to 1. So they only make up 8% of the population, and they're being incarcerated yeah. at a 9 to 1 rate. They got over a half a billion dollars a year budget in 2012. It's probably yeah. closer to 600 million in 2015. And uh, we know that they are over 50% more costly to incarcerate in Massachusetts than any other state, charging a whopping $53,000 a year to incarcerate one person. 
So now in addition to you robbing people like that, you want to throw an extra $2 a day on per person so you can beef it all up even more. It's ridiculous, man, but that's fact, modern slavery. Massachusetts has a, uh, their, their overpopulation in the prisons right now is at 155%. Mm. This is just, like you said, brother, it's, it's, it's a way where they're just literally molesting us. Question. Extorting us. Uh, just raping us for everything they can possibly get and telling us it's for our own good. Well, Go ahead, Scotty. Well, ne- yeah, never mind. Never mind. Well, yeah, I do have a question. Um, when we covered the case of California's overcrowding in the Supreme Court, the case went before the Supreme Court, and they ordered that uh, California would have to release those uh, low-level offenders, um, you know, uh, nonviolent uh, drug offenders. And, and, you know, they had to do something. But rather than let those people go, uh, they just contracted, you know, uh, facilities with the GEO group. But getting to the original um, ruling, the Supreme Court was saying that uh, uh, overcrowding is unconstitutional. So did that ruling just apply to California, or does it not apply to all the states across, um, you know, that's a, a part of USA Inc.? Don't they have to all still go by that that ruling? I, I, I may be mistaken on that. That's a question for some of our legal uh, scholars out there. But I would think, I would, uh, you know, assume um, that overcrowding anywhere in the United States uh, is unconstitutional. So I don't know. Maybe they're setting it up to, um, you know, start charging people two dollars a fund so that they can fund more prisons. I don't know. Maybe they're that's what they're trying to do. Who knows? Um, but it, it you know, is corrupt. Just taking the cream right off the top, man. Yeah, that's Honestly, true. Yeah, that's true. I think that's what it is. That this is state money. That the prisons are getting the other money, and this is how the state gets their extra money. Mm-hmm. Need a new just boat, by man. Skimming it right off the top. New beach house. Mm-hmm. We got about four minutes to our next break. Do we want to uh, jump to our next story or or hold off uh, for a second there? Uh, we only got a couple minutes. Well, we got about four minutes to the next. Uh, All right. Well, uh, the next story, I guess, is the prison uh, policy initiative and in the 2015 whole pie where they talk about the numbers for mass incarceration. Uh, I guess we could talk a little bit about anything and then come in on after the break with that, because that's going to take a good chunk, I think. Okay. Just to read the, the data that they uh, have provided for us, which is uh, astounding, to say the least. You, you know, guys, um, it, well, in a few minutes, about three minutes we have, I just want to say if anybody out there, anybody, maybe this is your first time listening to New Abolitionist Radio, and we've been on air for, what, three, four years now? Um, broadcasting this weekly program every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. If you have any questions about whether or not uh, slavery was really abolished by the 13th Amendment, again, they had that big ceremony, you know, uh, earlier this week, or was that last week? I I get confused. But anyway, last week, yeah. And so they had that big celebration. And so you might have saw that, and then you'll be like hearing uh, us you know, on this show saying that slavery was never abolished, 13th Amendment has a loophole in it, and you're still, so you're in a state of confusion, so you want to know where we're getting our information from, um, or you have any other questions, or there's just something you don't understand, or maybe 
um, you can explain, you know, um, maybe you are the one that can justify to us why all this is okay. Why is 21st century slavery and human trafficking okay with you? Because there are some people out there like that. So um, please feel free. Give us a call. The telephone number, studio line, 704-951-5030. The conference line, of course, is 641 615-3660. The participant code is 549032-POUND. For those already dialed in, if you have a question or comment, hit star 6 and 1. And the last way is to just jump right in to the video chat and pose your uh, question or comment. We'll certainly get you in on the broadcast. Uh, Guys, uh, we still got a couple of minutes. Um, Anything uh, outside of tonight's program that's been on your mind lately that caught your eye? Well, I have to admit, Scotty, I have been done, <laughs> like so done. I, I feel like your Hanan feels on more than one occasion. You know what I mean? Like, what <laughs> more could I possibly say? And I'm watching the terrible deeds that they're doing, uh, particularly like what just happened with the Freddie Gray case. Also watching last yeah, night, hung jury there. the Republican deba- debate and how all they talked about was murdering and killing people. Uh, even a doctor, you know, the doctor came out and said, I got no problem with killing innocent men, women, and children. Being as long as I get that one person I was looking for. I mean, what is this? This this country is really just going overboard. And in particular, the Republican Party has shown itself to be nothing but warmongers and slavers. And I, I don't know how we're going to fix it. Killers, man. Cold-blooded killers. That's cold-blooded, cold-blooded man. Cold-blooded killers. Yeah, cold-blooded it's, it's killers. A, it's, it's all propping each side up, man. It's it's the same. I understand definitely what you're saying, and they're the ones being featured as, as being this way uh, for that particular purpose right now. That's just the role that they're being put in is to play right. that game. But we all know what it is, man. It's it's a it's a it's like a, a propping one side up so it can get leverage to lift up what it's really trying to put in place, which is. I believe, honestly, that all all signs from what I see show that they're uh, moving to push uh, Hillary Clinton into the next presidential. Yeah, I was going to say that. Um, so you, you got to show the Republicans as being these extremists and crazies, and what that does is rallies the troops, you know, for these so-called conservatives, and which which we know what conservative is code word for, you know, uh, white folks basically. So it's just showing the racial divide, it's showing the the rabble rousing for for all of that, and. Uh, I think that's all it is. It's, it's just a bunch of passion, man. Well, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back on the other side. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, I think we're going to go into our next story, which is the report that came in from the Prison Policy uh, Institute, where they talked about the whole pie. Uh, They broke down exactly from their research where all the prisoners are, why they're in there, and uh, what they're being arrested for. It's a pretty amazing uh, amount of data here. 
the largest that I can see on there easily is the immigra immigration detention, uh, which takes a huge chunk. State prisons, it looks like state prisons are about 70% of the population. Local jails look to be about 30%. Kids make up maybe 20% or 15% of the population. I'm just rounding out looking at this pie chart. Yeah, I'm looking have. at it as well. Right, and federal prisons make up uh, about another 15, 10, 15 to twenty percent, something like that. Two hundred and eleven thousand prisoners. I don't know if they are using the data from private prisons as well in here, because the number seems of the total seems to be a little low in comparison. So this is probably just based on state, federal, and local jails. Um, nothing about fed about. Uh, for this is what the uh, graphic says. The graphic says the United States locks up more people per capita than any other nation. But grappling with why requires us to first consider the many types of correctional facilities and the reasons that 2.3 million people are confined, confined there. See, but, okay, this would include, since they're given that total number, that often cited number, which we have cited ourselves, this does, in, this includes all people with that prison slave status, period. That's okay. in, in jails, state prisons, federal prisons, it doesn't matter. But it also includes those on private prisons and, and whatnot, and because those are considered, like for example, uh, the GL group gets federal contracts. Those are federal contracts. And then a state may have, like Louisiana has a state contract with Correction Corporations of America. So what I'm saying is, what I'm thinking according to this chart is, since it doesn't mention private prisons, that um, some of these people they're talking about, I would say a huge percentage of these people uh, that they're talking about and where they're housed are housed. And, and uh, this includes private prisons and jails. Which would be banned totally if well, we can get the uh, Justice is Not for Sale Act 2015, but it just seems like the people who even authored the bill don't seem all that interested in promoting it that much. Uh, so I would love to see that come up in a democratic debate or somebody mention it, you know, um, on the campaign trail. But, you know, so that's that's my guess, uh, guys, is that it does include private prisons, but it's very um it's a very informative chart. And again, you know, people think we're lying. How dare you say uh, home of the brave and land of the free when, you know, uh, China, uh, Turkey, uh, name a country that, you know, um, doesn't lock up as many of its citizens. And I heard this this uh, congressman's um, staff member um, from my local district where I live and I he told me his explanation for that was okay because in America we got so much freedom that people abuse that freedom and therefore we got to lock them up that, that was his stupid response you know as to why China doesn't lock up as many people why Iran doesn't lock up as many people why you know name a country nobody locks up more people then in the United States. So, you know, one of the numbers that really uh, should be put out there a lot more is being underplayed on purpose, I think, is not the 2.3 million statically in these prisons, but the uh, over 11 million who go through these local jails every year. So every year, 11 million people cycle through these jails. And that's where a lot of these counties are getting much of their budgets from, particularly in places like states like Louisiana.
And just well, think, man. Parishes are like little kingdoms. And just think, if you could get two dollars a day off of each and every one of those people, in addition to the taxpayer money you getting for your budget. Yep. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And uh, just looking at some of these charges, like why are people in there? Uh, in the state prisons, they have one point four million people in the state prisons, and the largest chunk of them are in there for violent crimes. Seven hundred eighteen thousand. 261,000 are in there for property uh, crimes. 212,000 are in there for drugs and public order, whatever that may be. It sounds like something that is not that uh, high on the criminal list is 149,000. So between public order and drugs, you've got 360,000 people in the state prisons, which is the largest, basically the largest number outside of violent crime. Um, for the local jails, as we've reported here on this show, most people in the jails aren't convicted of anything. They're just sitting there waiting for a trial because they couldn't afford bail. Uh, not Half convicted a million represents almost. 451,000 of 646,000. And we've also reported from here that 90%, a full 90% of all people sitting in jails right now waiting for trials are either black or Hispanic. Mm -hmm. Of the jail, 646,000, the only uh, part left is convicted, those who are waiting to go to their prisons, and that's 195,000, which is uh, less than half of the not convicted. Well, when you when you comment about the uh, waiting on trials, we already know what the number is on that. So, I mean, that's just difficult to even see. To, somebody to would look at these numbers. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, Johanan, but there is I don't need. I'm not even gonna say his name because he just really irritates me. And um, but there is this guy. He's I call him an Obama bot. He, it's black dude, and he's an Obama bot, and he's always making excuses and you know for whatever the Obama administration may be doing. But anyway, uh, this guy said there's no such thing as mass incarceration. So to him, you know, if we look in the state prisons, if we got let's just round it off, two hundred thousand people in prison in jail for nonviolent victimless drug crimes that's in the state prisons then we got another hundred thousand in the federal prisons so you know we're what at three hundred thousand people right now and then you know we go to eleven in the federal um no a hundred and five thousand of those are uh just drug related oh, drug, yeah, yeah i'm yeah, talking yeah, about so. drug related the drug war and whatnot. So that's 300,000 people right there. And then, you know, that's not even counting among the 195,000 um, that may be in jail. Let me see. That's 45,000 in jails uh, behind drugs. All right. So we're looking at 345,000 uh, people who are in prison who shouldn't really even be there. And you say that that's not mass incarceration. Well, what again, like the guys was asking at the beginning, does it have to be a million of them? Does it have to be two million of them? We, we, we're not even talking about, we don't want to even bring into the conversation about vi whether or not violent uh, people who commit violent crimes like rape, molestations, robbery. We're not even talking about those people, right? You know, we agree that, well, I, I can speak for myself. I agree that I'm not so the one to say, well, you know, you, you know, um, 
you shouldn't be in jail for that. You should go to some kind of class on how to not rape people or something like that. You know, I, I haven't come to the place where some abolitionists are and saying, you know, it's got to be something else better than prison. But until they can spell that out for me, you know, I'm just not buying into it and whatnot. So we're not even talking about those people. We're talking about people who are in prison over nonviolent, victimless drug offenses. And then when you consider the number one trafficker of drugs is the United States government and private contractors of the U.S. government, you know, and agencies. And there's a lot of factual evidence to back that up. But, you know, to me, you know, one person in jail unjustly is one too many. Let alone, we're talking about, again, what, 345,000, somewhere around there. That's a lot of freaking people, man, you know, to have in labor camps over smoking weed. They say in the story, uh, there's a quote I'll read that uh, echoes what you just said. The data confirms that nonviolent drug convictions are a defining characteristic of the federal prison system, but play only a supporting role at the state and local levels. Critically, while drugs are the most significant offense for only a minority of people in state and local facilities, there are 1.6 million drug arrests each year, each giving year. residents of over-policed communities criminal records, mm -hmm. which then serve to increase sentences imposed for any future offenses and have many other damaging effects. And we just seen out of Alabama, you know, the, uh, the drug gang of the police department down there uh, planting guns and drugs on people. So, yeah. Well, we could see here in this pie that, and, and you know, there's that one other piece of the pie that I was curious about. What the hell it means is the, uh, let me see if I can pull it back up here again, is these public orders. Uh, those are big chunks of people in prison, public order. If you look at the federal level, it represents 23,000. Uh, and if you look at the jails, there's another 10,000. And if you look at the state prisons for uh, that, it would be 150,000. That could That's be a lot homeless of people, people. In, in prisons and jails for something called public order. That's probably your 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 uh, homeless people. We know many of these cities and, and uh, towns have passed laws criminalizing the homeless that could be them pre them pastors that got arrested for feeding the homeless and running a soup kitchen in the park without the proper permits and stuff like that the men with the sagging pants yeah drag yeah yeah drunken right. disorderly right. you know stuff like that and you know people talk about what about the rapists and the murderers and all of that you know you add all of those things together uh, they don't represent the majority of why people are in prison. That's why we say close to 1.3 million people need to be released from prison. Uh, right. When you talk about murder, just on the state level, it's 169,000. Manslaughter is 18,000. Rape and sexual assault is another 170. And robbery is 185. So those uh, one, two, three, four together only make up what? Uh, 170, that's uh, 200, 350, 400, about half a million people. So yeah. out of the 2.4 million people, a half a million people just basically, uh, according to this chart, should be in prison. The rest need to get the hell out, out of there. Add to that, though, Max, the way that we are able to prove what we say every week. Not We're not speaking out of emotions and, and just throwing up a bunch of uh, rhetoric. 
the facts are there that support every single week. The reports are there to show you the numbers of people that are wrongfully accused and wrongfully tried and, and, unconst and unconstitutionally put to trials and not even given an opportunity to face an actual trial because they're facing stacked up charges by these prosecutors that have more power than sitting justices on every level of our judicial system in this country. When Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy sat up at the 2016 budget meeting and said himself, we, the fourth, the, uh, the, the fourth amendment right to a fair trial is a myth. With 97% of federal cases going to plea deals, 94% of state cases ending in plea deals, judges do not even get to see evidence, do not get to hear witness testimony, juries neither are able to see any kind of evidence or even hear any kind of testimony. All that happens is the prosecutor goes behind closed doors, throws up a thousand charges against somebody that was accused of doing one thing and says, if you think you're going to get out of here alive, you're crazy. Not only will you get the five years I'm charging you with on this one charge, I'm going to give you 50 years with these other thousand charges I'm going to throw against the wall, and somebody's going to convict you of some more stuff. I don't care if you did it or not, or sign these papers. And that's what's happening. So when you give me 500,000 people that's in prison right now for all those things you said, yes, violent offenses, criminal offenses against other individuals or against property, you know, totally antisocial behavior will be indicated by these charges that's being put against these people. But then you give me the other side of the coin, and I know how they're getting railroaded on a large scale. I would venture to say it might be 100,000 people in this country of 350 to 400 million people. It might be 100,000 people that, honest to God, commit violent crime against one another. It might be. Right. You're right. There was another study that came out that said that juries are wrong 17% of the time in their convictions. But as you said, we, they don't even get juries because uh, unless you're a cop or you're rich, you don't get a jury. You just get 96% plea bargain or 94% well, some plea of that is federal and state. Well, some of that, let's be honest about that, though. We are mm -hmm. choosing to plea bargain because we're scared. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, the system does coerce you into pleading out because, you know, you might be facing nine or ten various charges and then they'll be like well we'll plead you down to these two and you just plead guilty to this and then you know so i understand why a lot of people do plead out but they do have that choice they do they have that choice and we've heard conversations and arguments you know that you know if people just decided that we all wanted jury trials that the criminal justice system the court system would grind to a halt you know, they will have to be scheduling cases to be heard 20 years out. You know what I'm saying? Uh, people be, right. yeah. But you know, when they are faced with that, people are faced with that type of uh, circumstance, it's hard for them to say, you know what, I want to go to court. Today. I know, because I if know. they lose, they get what that prosecutor know. they was going to get. Right. I know, right. but, uh, but the, the, the situation with, uh, with uh, what was her name, uh, Marissa Alexander? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's basically we witnessed what, what occurred in that situation. Now, I'm not getting into whether she was wrong or any of that. That's a whole separate issue. The point being that she faced that kind of a situation. And that was a somewhat, somewhat legit instance of something like that happening. What's, what's not even spoken of in this country is how rampant the cases run where it's not even legit charges. It's not even a legit. I mean, we're talking about the right. Khalid Browders of the world. 
Right. They just get snatched up off the street corner. We're talking about this, like the brother tonight, uh, George Allen, 30 years later. We're talking about this is on a massive scale of just throwing bodies against the wall. Whoever can't get out, then, you, you, hey, that's, you just deserve to be in our system. I believe that that is the norm. I believe that is the the more uh, uh, massive, the more common uh, situation. I know there's people that are committing crime, and I definitely know what you're saying, Scotty. We need to be honest and keep it, you know, keep it 100. There's plenty of people doing stuff they ain't got no business doing, and they just don't want to face all them years. So, yeah, they take a deal. Even within that, though, the system is, is it doesn't represent justice. Because look at these people. What they had the story of the girl that was the daughter of the uh, was a DEA agent or D, yep. one of the DEA yeah, heads, yeah, DEA agent. Yeah, this is all too common, man. High school celebrity, mm-hmm. teenager, rich people, Mitch McConnell's family, on and on with these people with the right, what they say, the complexion for the connection and the bread. It ain't no trial. You, you can go home. Uh, another thing well, that I want to point out from this report, right. though. Is uh something mm-hmm. that I have uh been calling the uh crimes of survival, survival crimes. Yeah. You know where yeah. you mug somebody, you know you snatch a purse or you stick somebody up at the ATM, uh because you're you know can't survive on the streets. You know that's why we see a whole movement right now for fast food workers to get paid fifteen dollars an hour because you know people living in poverty tend to not be able to make enough to live and support their families so they turn to alternative means whether that is selling drugs or uh becoming a stick up kid or or some other kind of nonviolent crime like uh what they might call food stamp fraud where you know a, a person who get food stamps they might be getting 200 a month uh but they need 100 dollars to pay to keep the electricity bill on and and so they may sell 50 dollars worth of their you know 100 dollars worth of food to somebody and put it on the card and get the 50 dollars to pay the electricity bill or whatever other bill you know that that has come up um you know but in their report and I'm going to read from it. It says number eight, and they have this numbered. So, people, please check out the report. Uh, we have linked to it on the broadcast page of BlackTalkRadioNetworks.com for tonight's uh, show, New Abolitionist Radio uh, Weekly. And uh, we also have, I have posted the links to all of the uh, things we're going to talk about uh, tonight in the chat room on our blab.im. Um, New Abolitionist Radio uh, account there. So, if y'all want to check it out. But this is number... Um, eight. It says our report on the pre-incarceration incomes of those in prison in state prisons, prisons of poverty, uncovering the pre-incarceration incomes of the imprisoned, found that in 2014 dollars, incarcerated people had a median annual income that is 41 percent less than non-incarcerated people of similar ages. Our preliminary analysis of jail data shows that people in jails may have even lower incomes. For pre-incarceration incomes of those in jails in 2002, see page 9 of Profile of Jail Inmates, 2002. So again, this goes to, you know, um, despite the federal government and the corporate media lying and saying that uh, unemployment rates fell to 6%, which they try to, you know, put it out there like, you know, 
94% of the American workers are employed and only 6% unemployed. And that's simply not true. That's simply not the case. And the real number for, let's say, let's just say the black community, uh, since more black people disproportionately end up in these jails and, and, and prisons. So let's just say the black community. Well, that could be, you know, pretty much 30% you know uh, of that particular community so po poverty has a lot like when people talk about well what about chicago and all the crime on the streets of chicago and places like that well i came across a tool online where you can you know get a map overview of high poverty areas in the united states it would like you know be color coded it was like bubbles and the more intense you know the poverty the brighter the color and whatnot and then i overlaid that with a map showing uh uh high areas in the united states where violent crime is is occurring and i mean it was like a perfect match you know violent crimes gun shootings all it high poverty areas not to say they don't happen in rural areas but it's more sporadic the day-to-day -day stuff you know, uh, drug involved stuff, you know, the violence connected to the drug war and whatnot. So, you know, I was it was good to see uh, that they looked at that, you know, and people don't want to address that. That's why it's important to make college tuition free for everybody. That's why it's important to pay, you know, um, service sector workers a livable wage and whatnot. So I was glad to see that they point that out, uh, that the pre-incarceration rates of people um uh, 41% less than non-incarcerated people of similar uh, ages. And so as that wealth uh, gap continues to increase with the 1% becoming wealthy and wealthier and, and more people so-called falling off the middle class bandwagon, it might not be too long till they find themselves, you know, in that 41% and, and part of the burgeoning uh, prison slave labor camps in America. Well, Baltimore is a perfect example of that. We know that Poverty and crime go hand in hand. And the more you go to these million dollar blocks, which is what they're called because they generate such a large income for prisons, the more you go to these blocks arresting people, the more poverty you create in a cycle. So these communities just start, they fall apart. They literally start falling apart until eventually you start seeing uh, a new wave of people come in to replace the others, which is the gentrification process. But they just arrest them until they're all gone. That's literally how they do it. Uh, generation after generation. And and the, what they do to the kids is terrible. One other part of this pie I want to read about the kids too. It says this whole pie methodology also exposes some disturbing facts about the youth entrapped in our justice, juvenile justice system. Too many are there for a most serious offense that is not even a crime. For example, there are almost 10,000 children behind bars for technical violations of the requirements of their probation or parole rather than for a new offense. Further, more than 2,000 children are behind bars for status offenses, which are, as the U.S. Department of Justice explains, behaviors that are not law violations for adults, such as running away, truancy, and incorrigibility. So they are locking these kids up and putting them in these juvie centers for running away or whatever the hell incorrigibility means to them and truancy. 
And as our other story after this one is going to show you, even for simple things like coming into the school and arresting kids for sagging pants. Right. Well, I think um, <clears throat> key to what you all are pointing out with, like you said, the link between the obvious link between, you know, the, the poverty and then those being the, the crime areas. Like you said, the, the crime is basically a survival. Um, you know, I think the key to this on the level that this program speaks to as far as modern day slavery and ending this practice and, you know, support what we talk about all the time is to remember that this is this is like the ideology of this system. So, yes, we're talking about the practice of, you know, imprisoning people so you can enslave them, you know, um, force them into labor uh, for slave wages or for no wages in many cases. Yes, we're talking about, you know, uh, state laws, federal laws, you know, black codes, uh, the new Jim Crow. We're talking about all these things, this ongoing link between the behavior of the dominant society towards kidnapped and enslaved African people and other indigenous people. So, yes, this is what we're talking about. But at the core of what, bottom line, America, white supremacy, what this thing is about on an ideological level, it has to have black criminality for it to exist. Mm -hmm. I, just, I just want people to, to be able to, to, like, go that deep into it to understand it. So you can swat at it. You can scrape the surface of it and be mad at it and yell at it, but you have to be able to understand it on a on a on a reality level. Like it's not gonna just go away because you're mad about it. It's not gonna stop because we talk about it. It's only going to end when you understand that it's the ideology of this system right. that we're against. We're we're choosing slavery as one of the strongest tent poles to hold up the whole charade. We know that without slavery, that's a major crippling factor. If we can just pull the leg of slavery out from under it, the system itself will begin to collapse. But it is, it is propped up as much on slavery as it is on an idea that black people are criminal. So keeping mm -hmm. them in poverty is the way that you can prove that they're criminals because they're going to have to eat somehow. You know, we, <clears throat> this uh, chart doesn't say anything about race. Uh, you have to look at our, listen to our archives. We break it down state by state, what's going on with races. As we said in the earlier part of this show, when talking about Massachusetts, uh, the uh, African-Americans only make up 8% of the population, but they're arrested at a 9 to 1 rate. But there's another big number involved in this mass incarceration thing, which is what happens when people get out of prison. There are another 850,000 people on parole Mm -hmm. And there are 3.9 million people on probation. There's more people right. on probation than in prison. More industry, Except more opportunity for profit. More opportunity for profits for a whole new in industry. You know, even like we've heard Geo Group and Correction Corporation, they diversify, you know, their different divisions and whatnot. You know, they have a division that handles immigrants, immigration detention. They handle, which this report also speaks to. Uh, but also they handle juvenile detention facilities. They handle uh, what is that? The home monitoring, the ankle bracelets and whatnot. So, yeah. And the private probation companies. 
Yeah, private probation companies and whatnot. And we did a story a couple of weeks ago about how they were charging people a whole bunch of fees and having them put back in jail if they couldn't keep up with the payments to pay for their right. so-called uh, parole There's supervision. There's actually a lawsuit in Alabama for extortion because that's what they're doing. Right. Right. Hmm. Well. <laughs> well, we're coming up on it, uh, our next break. And when we come back from the break, we're going to go into the other story about sagging pants. I mean, we're reading the black codes all over again. Um, and it's not to say that they ever stop, but, you know, they're pretty damn clear now. The black codes are in place, particularly for black people. <laughs> You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. It's going to take a quick break, and when we come back on the other side, we'll get to that story. Not a China. We set the foundation. Come on. This is Brother Elliot, host of Time for an Awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennium. Uh, welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, our next story coming up is about a couple of teens that were just recently arrested in Tennessee. Well, now, before you before do I that, Max, you, before you jump ahead. to the next story again, let's uh, encourage listeners, uh, viewers, since now we have video, to, again, if you have any questions, if you have any horror stories that you know of where this is happening uh, locally, uh, give us a call. There's the studio line at 704-951-5030. Again, that's 704-951-5030. The conference line, of course, is 641, what is it, 715-641-715-3660. That's 641-715-3660. The participant code is 549032-POUND. For those already dialed in, welcome uh, just hit star six and one at any uh, opportunity you would like to take to ask a question or make a comment about 21st century slavery and human trafficking. Again, for those who are uh, tuning in via uh, the video uh, chat room, you can j jump in as well. Uh, we'll take your calls there from there as well. Please continue, Max. Well, uh, speaking of our listeners, one of our supporters, Nancy Nordyke Shelley uh, pointed out something to me regarding this whole pie thing. She says larger cities are now charging inmates high dollars for incarceration where they become aware of funds the same. For example, your mother dies while you're in prison and you inherit 10000 So the state takes it. Also in California, they want to charge $36 a day, not $2, $36 a day to inmates when they get out. And the legislation for that is pending. Wow. Thanks for the all info, this, man. All this going on. Yeah, thank you for that. All this going on. So this is the uphill battle we're fighting, people. You got a, a major candidate for president of the United States put out legislation, uh, what, six, eight weeks ago mm -hmm. to, uh, camp, to campaign to end private prisons, to abolish the system of private prisons in this country with good, with good proof of why to do so. Okay. Um, I don't know if that has even actually been introduced um, or if it's, you know, is it going to committee? I mean, we don't know where that's at.
But as Max just uh, informed us, this legislation to further incarcerate and enslave the already incarcerated and enslaved, to further defraud and defund the poorest people, the least represented people out there, this is going right on through with flying colors. So this is the bipartisanship that we know that this, this Congress can enact. But when it's time to, to talk about justice, like we saw in Florida, for example, all last year we saw in Florida, we were able to see from uh, Brother George Mallinckrodt down there, we saw how the Florida uh, State Senate was working to make changes in their prison system where they had over 250 people died in custody in 2014. Mm -hmm. They had all these big blowouts. They had all these news exposés. All these people telling what's going on. They had, they had six, I think, uh, five or six uh, Department of Corrections uh, state secretary uh, for the entire Department of Corrections, for the entire mm -hmm. state, new secretaries, new chairpersons or whatever, like six people um, in the last five years or something like that. When this lady gets put in this last time, we saw Corizon drop a $1.2 billion contract with the state because it was just easier to cut bait than to stand and face the carnage that they've been a part of creating in that state for the last several years. We see all of this going on, and the state Senate went and took them people to task, did surprise visits, called all kind of folks out, fired all kind of people, did all this stuff they could do. And when they put legislation out there, the House, this Florida State House, cut all of that down to nothing, completely marginalized every measure that was worth something that they had in the legislation they proposed, put in their own legislation that went right along with what private prisons want to do, passed that, and then closed the session for the rest of the year. So the reality is what it is. And this is what, I mean, I get upset about these things because I'm looking at the reality of what's happening. I'm a results-oriented person. We could talk all we want to talk, but we know what's actually happening. This is an example in one state that is mirrored in all 50 states. Sorry about that, y'all. You're right. You're right, <laughs> Why are you apologizing to you know, us for? <laughs> it's just, I just, I mean, I, I listen to people talk. They, they loosely want to hear about this. They they find out this is what we're talking about. They see you in the street. They oh man, you da da da. They want they act like they want to talk about it, but it's not like you're gonna get shot down for discussing this. It's not like you're gonna get lynched on the spot for planning a slave revolt because we're talking about this. There's not really gonna be any consequences for you learning all you can learn about this. This is gonna come from an exterior, an outside source. Nobody's going to do anything to you because you learned the truth about this situation. But you know what these cowards are running from and why I have a hard time making friends in this society when, I, when people know the truth and they don't do nothing? Because what's keeping people from doing something is when you learn the truth, it's inside of you. It's inside of you. It's not going to be some slave patrol come and snatch you up or burn your house down or run your family out into the night because you was planning a revolt. Because you learn about what's going on for real and you learn about slavery that's really happening, and you learn about the death, you learn about the carnage, you learn about what's going on in your country, it's going to rip your own heart apart. And instead of facing that, you say, oh, I don't watch the news. Oh, well, no, I don't really get into politics. Man, I, I just don't have time for that kind of stuff. I just, I don't, I can't. You bury I mean, your you head know, they're in the do sand. Yeah, bury oh. your head in the sand and like it ain't happening. Yeah. But then yeah, turn around and say you what you wouldn't have stood for if you lived back then. Oh, they wouldn't have did it. They, they would have did it to you a hundred times worse. You ain't got the heart the slaves had to withstand what they withstood. 
Ain't nobody going to do nothing to you today and you won't even listen to the news. I'm sorry. I'm done. I'm done. Y'all go ahead. You're right, brother. I had a friend of mine come here and uh, spend a couple days with us in the new house. And he said he came right here because God put it in his heart to come and let me know that one day people are going to say I was right. <laughs> I kind of looked at him like, what? Right about <laughs> what? Slavery never being me. abolished. But I don't need to know that. I know I'm right. And I know that change is going to take us a little bit of time because people aren't, compl- aren't really waking up uh, at the speed we want them to wake up. Because we see it as life or death, immediate life or death, clear and present danger right now, whereas they see it uh, as something that they need to check out sometime soon. I mean, it really is a matter of life or death where you have people dying just about every day. You know, somebody's going to have to come up with a clock or some statistics or something to show how many people die on average. You know, we got to every 28 hours a black person is killed. I would like to see that expanded even include all people. And then it'll probably be down to like every 12 hours somebody is killed by police, security guards or or whatnot. But then for inmate deaths as well, we should have a tally of that and, um, you know, have this great big board of casualties and, and, and put their na- like a names. A whole pie in, for that. Yeah, a whole pie for the casualties and, and whatnot. So, um and then, you know, you, I'm looking at our next story, too, and we probably reported on this sometime when they first proposed it. But two Tennessee uh, teenagers have been jailed for sagging pants. Look, you know, this is the state that after the Confederate flag was brought down in South Carolina, where this uh, white male racist suspect um, uh, some kind of way put this big giant flag on the side of a mountain in Tennessee um, on land that he stole. Obviously, he stole that. that you know, I did the research. That's Cherokee uh, land. Um, where he, you know, supposedly has these hundreds and hundreds of acres, but he put a big giant Confederate flag. So that's the state we talking about. This is where the so-called Tennessee mom wrote the Charlotte Observer paper of record complaining about this black quarterback named Cam Newton dabbing and, and, and all of that kind of garbage. You know, this is also the state where, you know, a couple of churches were shot into uh, following the murder of the Emmanuel Nine. Uh, this is also the state um, where finally M- Memphis City Council got some backbone and said, you know, we're no longer going to pay to maintain this white supremacist statute to Nathan Bedford. We're no longer going to, you know, have this be here where we got all these white supremacists making a pilgrimage to Tennessee. So, you know, uh, who do you think was was going to be targeted by the sagging pants laws. It's not a matter of whether or not you think sagging is pleasing to the eye or or if it's the most disgusting thing you ever seen. You know, but all you're really seeing is boxer shorts. That's really all you're seeing is boxer shorts. Now, there's got to be some other way that we can talk to these youth about fashion, you know, other than throwing them in jail. But we got these two teenagers jailed for sagging pants and they're going to stay in jail unless they poor family, which, again, going back to the chart, we were just reading from 41% of the people incarcerated, you know, are, are far, um, um, are living in poverty. So, obviously, they're going to have problems coming up with $250 in fine because this kid was said to be sagging. And then think about, you ain't really got to even be sagging. It's going to be your word against the officer. 
you know, and so unless you pull, tell them I want to see it on the dash cam, I don't believe my son was sagging. You got to show me on your, don't you got a body cam? Well, I don't believe he was sagging because y'all lie all the damn time. And we know you write tickets to generate revenue. Look at what you was doing in Ferguson. And what and that was uncovered by the uh, um, U.S. Justice Department in their Ferguson report. So, yeah, I mean, so and then, man, I seen and I think this was Alabama and I seen this come across social media. But it was a post of a black cop and a black politician and they had just passed a local ordinance on sagging pants. And, and they like like they really doing something like was said earlier, the respectability politics and whatnot. And, you know, it's, it's so strange is that porn is free. Anybody, it don't matter how old you are, can go on the Internet and get all the porn you want. You can walk up and down the street and see women dressed half naked, men dressed half naked in what they call fashionable clothing, cleavage is flying everywhere, mm-hmm. men in skin-tight pants trying to show off every little uh, thing that they got going on. But apparently young teen black men, with their boxer shorts showing, not their skin, just the boxer shorts, is too much for you to bear, and they have to go to jail or be fined. And as you said, these are kids. They can't afford to pay no fine, so the parents are paying the fine. And if the parents can't afford to pay the fine, guess what? Somebody's going to jail. And I think that's where they wanted them to be to begin with. And you were right that we have reported on this before. We reported on it last year when uh, Irvin Leon Edwards, a 38-year-old man, was tased to death and left in a cell to just lay there and die after being arrested over sagging pants. So that was, uh, we reported on that last year. Mm -hmm. So this year we're dealing with Tennessee. Now that happened in Louisiana where the man was killed. But there's at least three different states other than that that have sagging pants laws, Florida and New Jersey, uh, for example. But now here we are in Tennessee where the capital of the largest prison and uh, uh, slavery in the, in the world, CCA, is located at right there in Tennessee, where at least a dozen judges have been uh, prosecuted for corruption charges where they were doing the same thing in Tennessee that they were doing in Pennsylvania in the kids for cash scheme. So let me read this story for you guys so you can get a, a guess of what we're talking about here. Two Tennessee high school students were arrested and spent two days in jail for wearing sagging pants to school. According to the Huffington Post, four students at Bolivar Central High School were charged with indecent exposure for reportedly wearing sagging pants to school in November. And two of the students were jailed for the offense in early December. I just took it and went on, one of the students, Antonio Ammons, a senior at school, told Action News 5, I didn't know what else to do. Ammon said that he'd never been arrested before. So now, see, this is the school-to-prison pipeline and black codes all wrapped up in one. Right. See, he'd never been arrested before, so now you just changed this boy's life and gave him a permanent Exactly. Rest. So he's never been uh, arrested before, but for 48 hours, he was inside a jail with other adult inmates. I really didn't like it, Ammons told WREG about his jail time. Ammons is now left to figure out how he's going to pay the more than $250 in fines and court fees. Now, you're talking about a high school student who don't have a damn job. Where is he supposed to get it? But we know what they want. We know that children his age, and they are children, are valued at up to $353,000 a year in New York State. Now, I don't know what the 
price to incarcerate in Tennessee is. I could probably find that out in a matter of minutes. But the average cost is somewhere over $100,000 per child. So they don't want his $250. They don't want that. They want his $100,000 for being in there for a year. Right. I, I want, Johan, and I think you were trying to jump in there before I bring up this other point. I want I want to bring up this other story involving uh, these uh, teens in sexting um, and comparing that to teens in sagging. But go ahead, Johanna. I know it sounded like you were trying to jump in. No, no, go ahead, bro. Go ahead. <clears throat> well, for some reason, uh, this CNN.com um, page doesn't want to load up. Maybe they're getting so many hits and whatnot. But I read the story earlier today. There, there were some... Uh, teens, and this is predominantly white school. Most of these teens involved are white, and they were trading sexting photographs of themselves. You know, uh, do people know what sexting is? I guess sexting is the wrong word, because sexting is where you're involved in a, I guess, a virtual uh, uh, intercourse or something. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and so you're sending each other these photographs and, and doing some other stuff to yourself. And so that's what sexting is. But what these these um, teens are um, not accused of doing, but the evidence is on the video, is that they were taking, uh, encouraging people and the girls were taking, you know, new photographs of themselves, the males too. And then they were trading these among each other like Pokemon cards. That's how they were being traded. And then they were saying that this may have even involved like, Three quarters of the football team has been involved in this, and we know how you know your your athletes are pampered and, and, and whatnot. But then you know um, this was like among a lot of the student body. So they decided the local prosecutor. I was trying to pull it up. I believe it's in Colorado. It is in Colorado uh, where this occurred. And the DA, the local district attorney, determined that there were going to be no charges for uh, against these. Uh, Middle school students accused of exchanging hundreds of naked photos and they won't face any criminal charge because, you know, they could charge them with child pornography, uh, manufacture of child pornography, the, the uh, sending, you know, a, a communication of pornography. And this is child pornography, even though it's produced uh, by children and whatnot. So but again, you'll take the black teens, you know, and I'm sure these two are black, aren't they black? black teens you take the black teens and you'll put them in jail and find them two hundred and fifty dollars and if they can't pay if their families can't come up with the money you put them in jail but then you got all these middle school students sexting uh sending pictures naked pictures of themselves but you don't want to ruin their lives so you're not going to charge them with criminal offenses and whatnot so i just wanted to you know compare and contrast Yes, it certainly is a big contrast, as you pointed out earlier, uh, and Johannes pointed out as well, with the DEA's daughter that was arrested and how she was treated uh, for trafficking drugs and, and being a drug dealer. But she was you know, treated in a whole different uh, way than our children get treated. Right. But you know what they say about our kids, that uh, we can't even compete in an even level playing field. we got the Supreme Court of the United States. Well, well let, let Max, before we move school, on, man, before we move on, um, Johanna trying to jump in there. And I know, you know, your uh, audio was kind of like on the delay 
perhaps. But uh, go ahead, Johanny. Oh, I was just going to back up what Max was talking about, which we already know, especially if you're a regular listener to this program, about the cause for youth incarceration. I uh, found a report from the Tennessee Commission on Children and Youth. This is the Juvenile Justice Policy Brief from January of 2015. They got a section to their report that uh, says it's called The Cost of Doing Nothing, um, saying that the cost of juvenile justice in Tennessee is significant, especially considering the fact that it does not necessarily improve public safety and offer results in worse outcomes for the youth, family, and communities affected. affected. Uh, it says that the cost of housing one youth in a state-funded juvenile justice facility now, this is just saying in a in a in a juvenile justice facility uh, facility specifically, two hundred and forty dollars and ninety nine cents a day, which at three hundred and sixty five days in a year adds up to just around eighty eight thousand dollars, which is pretty much right on the money to what what Max was saying. So, um, and the juvenile justice facilities are no doubt uh, set up to be a cost saving alternative to traditional state facilities. Um, so, you know, the, the $88,000 being a savings over which, what is likely over $100,000 for a state facility for you, um, $5.7 billion that the states overall spent on, uh, youth imprisonment, that was way back in 2007. So again, when you start trying to get these numbers, you know, this is the, Ju the, uh, Tennessee Commission on Children and Youth, the Juvenile Justice Policy Brief for 2015. These people no doubt have access to whatever the latest numbers are. They're going to make their case as strongly as they can. And this is on a state level and being looked at on a nationwide level and in a comparative. So for them to only be able to quote to you a number from 2007, again, this just picks up on and, and, and uh, uh, verifies what Max has said the entire year he's been doing these state-by-state -state reports for America is Ferguson. When you try to get the numbers, guess what you're not going to be able to find? No numbers from the last five, six, seven, eight years in a lot of cases. So it's just ridiculous, man. I, I found out uh, here from the uh, Justice Policy Institute that to incarcerate a child in Tennessee is $110,000 a year. There you go. That's hmm. where they want. There you go. Hmm. So wow. they're they're hoping that the family don't have the $250 because then, you know, the longer they get to stay in jail. Wow. Again, people, this is 21st century slavery and human trafficking. And these are slave codes that they pass in the new black codes. And um, we, you know, it's our mission to try to expose this and, and give the information to the people and hope that they see the pattern. You know, that's the whole purpose of the Ferguson is America series, that these are not isolated incidents. These are patterns and practice of law enforcement all across this land unbroken patterns and practices we have yet to find a single state and we're up in the ends now so from a to n we have not found a single state that didn't fit this pattern that's right hmm. yeah it is well you know as you said earlier Johanna, it's an ideology that they're putting out that you know it's all based on us being criminals and yeah. you got supreme court uh judges saying that right there from the supreme court that we're just too dumb to keep up with white people and that uh if we went to uh you know lower schools lower standard schools we do much better but when we try to go to yale or harvard there's no way in hell we could become president i mean even had the chief justice Oral roberts said 
what unique perspective does a black man bring to physics? <laughs> like, how could you even say something like that? Have you ever heard of Neil deGrasse Tyson? <laughs> you, you I mean, him, I get right? the question. I no. get the question. The question is, is you know, um, when you're talking about math and sciences, I mean, the question was an invalid question, but he's talking about what does color, a person's skin color, you know, diversity bring to, you know, the uh, lab uh, experiment. You know what I'm saying? What kind of experience? Well, you know, that's not what they're talking about when people talk about diversity on the job, when they talk about diversity on, on the campus. Uh, these are institutions and places that, you know, have traditionally been shut. Doors been shut to black people and even women and other non-white people. And so when people say that they're looking for diversity, they're more talking about cultural diversity. They're not talking about really academics. Academics is academics. But it's something beyond the academics when you're talking about a community. And colleges are communities, when you, especially when you have, you know, student body living on campus. And that's a community. That's a community. So they're looking for diversity in the community. And perhaps they're looking to teach these white kids some empathy since most white people uh, are challenged according to scientific studies. Um, you know, when it comes to having empathy for non-white people. So perhaps, uh, like I've heard some people say uh, to me on this program, say, well, you know, how can you have empathy for someone if you never live around them, you never talk to them, you know, you never get to live in their world, so to speak, or hear their perspective. So that's what they're talking about in diversity. So Chief Roberts can, you know, he's being, he's, he's dealing in trichnology right there. The question isn't even valid. You know, they're not saying that, you know, uh, um, um, that a black person or a Hispanic person or or a Muslim can bring something to the table in terms of uh, solving a scientific equation. You know, that's not what's being <laughs> stated here. And uh, for uh, Scalia, I was just reading on Black Talk Radio News the other day about Woodrow Wilson. You got the black students at, at Princeton. Uh, protesting and looking to get the uh, name of Woodrow Wilson, a former president of the United States CEO of America, who screened uh, that racist Klan recruitment movie. What was the birth of the nation? And they want to remove his name from some buildings and some programs and, and endowments because he was a racist white supremacist. Well, he also, um, you know, according to the reports I was talking about yesterday, he also didn't have a favorable view of Polish people. Uh, people from Hungary, and then guess who else? People from Italians, Italians like Scalia, who he said was slow and dim-witted, and men of, of low moral character. Now, I'm not going to say those things are, uh, you know, that Justice Scalia exhibits, exhibits those characteristics because he's Italian, but he does seem to be a person of low uh, uh, moral, with a low moral compass. Well, he definitely said some disparaging things, and he made some statements that I know he has no knowledge of whatsoever. They were straight-up <laughs> racist statements. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, he said that most of the black scientists in this country don't come from schools like the University of Texas. They come from lesser schools, but they do not feel that they're that they're being pushed ahead in, in classes that are too fast for them. Um, so he's basically saying that they can't keep up. But see, <clears throat> and, wait a minute, there's one other thing I want to read in here. It says, referencing an un unidentified amicus brief, Scalia said that there were 
people who would contend that it does not benefit African Americans to get them into the University of Texas where they do well, as opposed to them going to a less advanced school, a less slower track school where they do well. Well, I was just Googling the percentage of black scientists in the United States. And as of 2009, African Americans received 1% of degrees in science, technology, and only 4% of degrees in math and statistics. Of the PhDs awarded in science, such as chemistry and physics, less than 2%, or 89 total, out of 320 million people, went to African Americans. White men make up less than 50% of the U.S. population, but they dominate the science field with over 98%. Okay. <laughs> Here's the thing. Here's the thing about this case specifically. The the, pe the plaintiff, uh, Amy Fisher, a, a racist little white girl, rich white girl at that, her attorneys, okay, this is the thing, and Scalia and them, these aren't the questions that, these are the questions that's not being asked. This girl couldn't get, succeed at the University of Texas if they let her in. She, her right, grades didn't. You know, so it ain't about us trying to prove that black people can succeed in university. I'm not even going down that road. I, I have no reason to to validate myself or seek the validation of others in saying, you know, well, here's where you're wrong. We got John George Washington Carver, and he invented this, and and we got Neil deGrasse Tyson, and and he's the same man. I ain't trying to go down that road. Okay, I, I don't care to go down that road. The case that is at hand, the plaintiff did not meet the academic standards to get into the school. And and so she's trying to look a way to sue the school because she didn't get in, all right, because uh, she didn't have the grades to get in. And then some other students uh, were given what's so-called affirmative action and where their grades, you know, were looked at and they didn't meet the standards but they had other extracurriculum uh, things. And and it wasn't black people. The majority of the students that got in on affirmative action were white people, man. And I assume they were white mm -hmm. women. That they had white to be women, white women to white come women. in under and affirmative you know, this story action. This goes deeper than that, Scotty. Well, let, let me finish, though, Max. Decide suddenly she wanted to sue. She was found by a friend of her father's who was looking for someone that he could use as an example in his uh, ongoing war against... Okay, so he uh, was looking for a test action. case. He was looking for right. a test so case to attack affirmative action. But again, the case is weak. The candidate that he chose is weak. Number one, these are the... See, we can allow them to frame the conversation around what they want us to frame the conversation or we can frame it around what we want it to frame around. And let's frame it around the facts. And the facts is, is that really she is undermining affirmative action for white women. Because like a listener had uh, um, questioned me or left a comment on the program I did about this on Black Talk Radio News. And they said, I'm a bit confused. So does this mean that white women no longer have minority protection you know because she's claiming that you know minority set aside affirmative action is harming have harmed me but she's a white woman so i mean this could depending upon how they rule it could end up harming white women and then they they'll be kicked out of you know 
affirmative action slots. They'll be kicked out of affirmative action business contracts that they got as right. women-owned, minority-owned businesses and whatnot. So this is the technology and all the different angles we should be looking at this at and informing people that don't nobody benefit from affirmative action more than white women. Okay? So those are the facts of the case that, that that's really piquing me in terms of some knuckle dragging Supreme Court justice like Scalia saying some racist stuff. You know what I'm saying? That's to be expected, man. That's to be expected. And I don't need to be pulling up no kind of list of successful black people to prove him wrong. You know, he's he's just wrong, period, on the merits of the case. What is done is has boosted the uh, well-known and outrageous numbers this the difference between uh, the average black person's uh, <clears throat> excuse me assets as a family or wealth uh, these indexes have have continued to spread since the introduction of affirmative action we had some some degree of parity you know even in the in the worst of the jim crow years in the uh, post world war 1 and of course post world war 2 years and we saw all the legislation and what they call it, the uh, redlining on the on the home loans, the uh, government loans given to the GIs. I mean, all of these things that were once again systemic. These are these are institutions that are that are the the framework mm -hmm. of the country and the society itself. Not just a little opinions or somebody did a little racist something here and there. You know that's why uh, uh, like uh, Dr. Joy uh, DeGroy often uh, reminds people that you know racism. Black folks can't really be racist. You can not like white people. You can be bigoted, but you can't affect the entire race of people. When white people don't like people, they can affect their entire way of living, which we've seen go on for all these decades. And when affirmative action came, that's when you saw that wealth gap go from whatever it may have been at that time. If the average black family had a value of $5,000, the average white family had 15000 Now we're looking at the average black family has 7000 the average white family got 150000 The affirmative action puts two breadwinners in well-paid positions in the same home. When that white woman goes out that house and gets affirmative action to start a business, to get a, get a job at some corporation and get equal pay and all this different stuff that affirmative action is going to help with the placement of, she takes that money right back home to her white husband. Right. And now they together represent this kind of a wealth gap. So the people can get over that. I mean, I wish they'd crash it. Get rid of it. Yeah, I was saying Why? that the other day, Johanan. It shouldn't really matter much to masses of black people uh, whether or not they gut affirmative action like they gutted the Voting Rights uh, you know, Act and, and whatnot. It shouldn't matter because we're not really benefiting from it anyway. We're not benefiting from it. You know what? Maybe 3% of us may have gotten and that was a point in this case that they said it doesn't matter that only one percent of the student population or less than one percent of the student population are blacks who got some kind of affirmative action consideration when they were admitted to the university or tell oh, that doesn't matter it's the principle that we have racial classifications and and i mean like man they sound like they try to sound like some counter racist but really, they are racist. They're, you know, the things that they're saying and where they're coming from and the things they fail to acknowledge. They just want to kill the program, the affirmative action program. And this white girl, this rich white girl, because she comes from a wealthy family, well, she didn't have the academic grades to get into the University of Texas. And so I doubt that she has the wherewithal to even know how she's being used and how I could end up 
harming white women. So there you go. There you go. Well, <clears throat> the next story coming up, and I think we got a break. We, we're past our break time, so we should take right, our break right. and then come back with our next story. The next story has pissed me off. And, then, you know, I try not to get pissed off too much, but this one really pissed me off. So you want to take our break now, Scotty? Yes. All right. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Our next story goes in uh, about a, a group of black pastors represented by one Bishop E.W. Jackson, who calls the Black Lives Matter movement disgraceful and demonic, <laughs> uh, basically saying that they're uh, divisive uh, because of their supposedly attacks on police. And uh, let me read a few quotes that came from the Roland Martin program. Actually, I would prefer if we could actually play like a minute. Oh, man, don't make me listen to that again. Don't let me. (laughs) That that, Man, come on, man. That proxy racist gave me a headache. (laughs) Well, this is. Where's the clip, man? Where's the clip? Where can I find the clip? uh, It's it's on the new abolitionist radio page as well as on a program. Let me get to the radio. To the original. I mean, I clicked uh, on. Is it like it's not the video? I have to go to a page to listen to it. Is what you're telling me? Because I posted yeah, the links. Page, yeah. Which one is it? It's 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 on the new abolitionist radio page. Uh, the video itself is inside the web page. What's the what's the story? Okay, I got it right here. All right, give me just a second as I pull it up. Yeah, man. I, I ain't trying to hear this, this hear this man too long and whatnot. Because this is what we're dealing with right now. Not only are we dealing with racist supremacists, but as uh, Scotty has coined, proxy racism, where they just believe anything these supremacists tell them and then shove it down everybody else's throat. And it's like something out of uh, Django, where you got my man up there talking about how good Master is and how we shouldn't be blaming him for everything. Yeah, there's no video on this page here, but um, yeah, I'm, the news I'm, one. Yeah, link. I'm, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing that the news one link. Oh, I really don't want to go to news one, man, because that thing is like it'll lock my browser up with right. everything well, I got going on. Here, uh, yeah. Conservative black minister Bishop E.W. Jackson joined Roland Martin on News One to discuss his views about Black Lives Matter and why he considers the movement demonic. Uh, Bishop Jackson is part of a group of ministers who believe it's time to revive America's inner cities. The group staying true to America's national destiny. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, what is America's national destiny? That sounds like manifest destiny you're talking about there. Or Stan says President Barack Obama and activists have done little to help the nation's growing race, poverty, crime, and violence issues. Uh, Bishop Jackson lashed out at the demonic Black Lives Matter movement during a conference call he organized with conservative activists in November. Jackson 
urged conservative actionist activists to join one of his campaigns to address the problem in America's cities right now. Because urban issues threaten to boil over into real unrest in our country as a result of this demonic Black Lives Matter movement and the rhetoric of this president. And before him, Attorney General Eric Holder and Al Sharpton and all of these folks who are so dedicated to stirring up racial strife. Man, he just um, sounds like doggone Sean Hannity or somebody like that. I get so tired of hearing the same talking points repeated over and over and over. Does this Negro have an original thought, man, or is we just got to listen to him drone on, you know, uh, spewing? No, he doesn't have an original thought. He, he just demeans his own people. He it ain't his people. It ain't his people, his man. Problem, his own his people. Who is his people, man? That there's a movement. His problem is that they are getting in these pastors' asses when they get up there, start talking about all lives matter, and when they start giving police support who are killing their children in the streets. So he's mad because every time somebody says all lives matter, like they did in Charleston, South Carolina, at the AME church that I was at, where Hillary Clinton had showed up and talking about all lives matter. When he says that, people get upset. And he don't want to not be able to say all lives matter. See, this is one of those dudes who have been convinced over generations, his father was probably the same way, that black people are the problem. And, that, and, and he also uh, gets upset because of the black-on-black crime that's going on that nobody wants to address. We've addressed it here. I'm more than one occasion. Look, man, I'm, I'm 57 years old. Don't even freaking exist. There is no such thing as black on black crime. When you start talking about white on white crime, Chinese on Chinese crime, dog on dog crime, lesbian on lesbian crime, then come talk to me about black on black crime. Otherwise, it's just crime. All crime matters, okay? All crime matters. We'll just say that. All crime. And black ain't no white on white. All crime matters. We won't address all crime, particularly the crimes of the state and these uh, police terrorists out here in 21st century slavery, uh, human traffickers. That All crimes ladder. Look, man, I don't really care too much to even talk about these people or give them too, too, too much attention. All right. He already has tipped his hand. I've seen the interviews. He's pro-police and, and all this and that. And so, man, I just really, I'm really irritated by people like him. He's an ex-cop and his son is a cop. Okay, so there you go. We know whose team he's playing for, all right? And for him to act like, to call somebody demonic, does he really want to use the word demonic? So what, what's, the, what's the plan, Pastor? What's the plan, Bishop? You going to lay hands on them and cast them demons out? I mean, come on, man. What's really demonic about people calling for police accountability? What's demonic about that for wanting more transparency in these investigations? What's demonic about, you know, not expecting the police to act like thugs in the hood? Do you know what I'm saying? Because, I mean, well, so what, what's demonic about demonic that? Involved. Let me tell you what's demonically involved. And it's a simple quote from Margaret Sanger on December 19th in a letter to Dr. Clarence Gamble. She said, we should hire three or four colored ministers preferably with social service backgrounds and with engaging personalities. The most successful educational approach to the Negro is through a religious appeal. We don't want the word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. Hmm. I mean, I don't hear nobody calling on Peter 
to go, you know, we're not calling on Peter. Do we come on here and say, Peter, lead them, stop trying to rescue them animals because we got human beings that's being enslaved right now. And human trafficking is going on and human beings are more important. No, we don't go at people and say, you shouldn't care about you know, feeding the homeless and only focusing on veterans or, or veteran issues. And don't you know, there's a whole other range of issues out there for us to address than these PTSD affected veterans. Why don't you care about the dolphins, man? And that's getting caught up in the nets out there in the ocean, you know, so you can have tuna fish and all. See, see what I'm saying? You see the game that's being played here with Black Lives Matter and trying to tell a organization, and I'm talking about the organization and not the hashtag, but trying to tell a young organization what they should be doing. They're barely a year old. You know what I'm saying? Pastor, where you been for 30, 40 years? You look like you're about in your 60s or 70s. How long have you been out there in the streets and, and, and addressing, quote unquote, the crime in the neighborhood? You know what I'm saying? And I remember, I'm 57 years old, man, 30 years I can remember of Stop the Violence campaigns. Matter of fact, you know, joining us in the chat room, in the video chat, um, um, is why you mad son, Chai Boogie or why you mad son. And she does, you know, community work with the, um, moms up there in New York. And, and they address those type of things, crime in the neighborhood. So, I mean, these type of organizations and movements have existed for decades, man. And so I ain't trying to hear it from somebody who's just looking to get some of the most buttery biscuits that they can get from Massa's table. And that's all this guy is, and I ain't trying to hear nothing he got to say. Yeah, well, you and I feel that way, and I'm sure Johanna joins us in that. Mm -hmm. But there are people out there listening to him and David Clark and Fox News. As you said, he sounds like Hannity because he sounds like Hannity. He sounds like he was trained in the school of Hannity thought. Johanna, what were you going to say? I just want to point out the first thing that even – said anything to me in this article and, and behind this event when I first heard about it, uh, it, it says right off the bat uh, that Bishop E.W. Jackson from the church, uh, the called church in Chesapeake, Virginia, and other black ministers from this organization, this stand, stand true to America's national destiny, gathered at the National Press Club to announce the launch of this Project Awakening which is a private sector, church-centered, comprehensive plan for the recovery of America's inner cities that focuses on teaching children they have options and blah, 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 blah. I just immediately thought that was a bit odd that these Negroes who probably never even knew what the address of the National Press Club was before they received their marching orders <laughs> were invited to come to the National Press Club and and speak out on this community organization, this plan for the future of the inner city that we are to believe that they came up with somehow. Mm. The National Press Club is a professional organization and business center for journalists and communications professionals. So where do you suspect these Negroes uh, belong? In the communications professionals category, I would say it's located in Washington, D.C. Its membership consists of journalists, former journalists, government information officers, and those who are considered to be regular news sources. It has gatherings with invited speakers from public life as well as a venue open to public to host business meetings, news conferences, industry gatherings, and social events. Now, this is one of the most prestigious 
speaking platforms in our country. And therefore, of course, it's got a very high standing in the world itself. And you mean to tell me that an assorted group of black pastors just one day got the, the, the right and the privilege to go hold a press conference here with this new uh, plan for the inner cities that they've devised that we're, so we're supposed to believe and pulled all this off. If you, if you believe that, if you believe that, what they, what's the old saying? I got some, I got a, I got a bridge I want to sell you. I mean, how ignorant do they think we are? Very right. ignorant. We've never been invited to come to the national press uh, conference and, and speak about slavery. Yeah. Hmm. Well, guys, we got like um, coming in on the last 15 minutes or less, more, less. Uh, we do have Lotus well, Place Radio coming up at 10 o'clock p.m. Right. Eastern Time right here on Black Talk Radio Network, your digital radio station for new black media in this new millennium. I think we got two more sections we got to cover. Yep, we got to do our abolitionist in profile and our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, which is our next segment. Uh, I guess we'll get right in it on that one then. Most certainly. All right. Well, at, every week we do these uh, segments so we can uh, give the information and remember the people that need to be remembered, like those who are being freed right now from these prison populations. And today's story, uh, our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, comes from the Innocence Project, and it is George Allen Jr. George Allen Jr. was exonerated on January 18, 2013, in St. Louis, Missouri, after serving over 30 years in prison for the murder of Mary Bell, a young court reporter. Allen was convicted based on part, in part on false confession, police tunnel vision, and blood type evidence that was said to include Allen, but actually eliminated him as a contributor. And the crime on the evening of February 4th, 82, Bell was discovered dead in her home by her living boyfriend who contacted the police. The autopsy showed that the cause of death was multiple stab and incised wounds to the victim's back and neck. And there was evidence of cons consistent uh, with sexual assault. The investigation and identification initially, police suspected a known sex offender, Kirk Eaton, whose brother resided in the victim's apartment building and who himself lived only five or six blocks away. Additionally, the victim's boyfriend, who she lived with, and husband, who she was separated from, were also early suspects. On March 14th, 82, by a chance encounter, police approached George Allen, a chance encounter, yeah, approached George Allen several blocks from the victim's house and mistaking him for Eaton, brought him in for question. So, see, they thought he was eaten because he was a black guy. It's really just that simple. Well, this is a black guy. This one will do just as good as any other one. Allen, who has an extensive history of severe mental illness, including hospitalizations for schizophrenia, eventually confessed to raping and murdering the victim. Wow. Ultimately, Allen was convict convinced by uh, Detective Riley that police had evidence against him, which was untrue. His protestations of innocence were futile, and consequently, the only alternative was to falsely confess. Now, this is what we were talking about earlier, where they give you so many hundreds of years of time and threat, threatening to tar and feather you and quarter you and all of these things, that you'll confess and take the least of whatever you can get. So how did Even he get out? Murder. So how did he get out? Huh? How did he get out? 
on the on the recording, Allen can be heard informing the officers that he is under the influence of alcohol. Throughout the interrogation, the detectives ask highly leading questions and prompts Allen to give him a question, his answers to fit the crime. Often, Allen uh, asking Allen to change his answer to do so. In those few instances where the detective did not ask a leading question, Allen confesses to uh, the, the crime. And in the trial, prosecutors primarily primary evidence at trial was the confession and testimony by a police lab analyst that was later proven to be false. The analyst testified that semen was found on the carpet under the victim's body in her vaginal and rectal swabs and several other places. He testified that the only antigens recovered from seminal fluid at the scene were A and H antigens, which could not include uh, exclude Alex Allen as the source of the semen. The prosecution emphasized this in its closing, closing argument. If Allen had been excluded as the source of the semen, we wouldn't be here. We know that he couldn't have, but it's consistent. There was no other physical evidence linking Allen to the crime scene. Mary Bell's work colleague, Pamela Ann Richardson, spoke with Bell at her home by phone between 10 and 10.15 a.m. and made arrangements to come to Bell's home to pick up some work materials. By the time Richardson arrived between 10.30 and 10.45, the perpetrator was already inside her home. Investigators used a highly unreliable tool of hypnosis to improve her memory, with a primary focus on whether or not Richardson had called out the victim's name while knocking on her door the morning of the crime, which is consistent with Allen's statement that he had heard someone call a name. Police reports showed that the witness was initially uncertain whether she had called out the victim's name, but she later testified at trial after the hypnosis session that she was certain she had done so. The hypnosis session was not revealed to the defense or the prosecutor. Allen's first trial was deadlocked and 10 2 in favor of the acquittal. Allen presented an alibi defense, and three witnesses testified that he was snowed in at home at the time of the murder. At the second trial, he was convicted on capital murder rape, sodomy, and first degree burglary, and sentenced to 50 years for capital murder and 15 years consecutive of each of the other three charges. So basically, uh, the hypnosis and the lies from the cops were thrown out. So, and that's how he got out. That's how he got out. Because they threw out all the evidence. Yep, there was no all evidence. The evidence. <laughs> yeah, and there he was. was snowed in when it happened. Literally 30, 30 years of his life gone. Yep, 30 years. All right. Well, man. Salute, brother. Salute. Salute. Welcome home. Hope you didn't get AIDS or hep C, hepatitis C or... Any other of the, of the communicable diseases that are rampant in these prisons? I bet freedom is all he got, too. Mm. Probably got that, what is it, $20 uh, uh, gift card that they give you? And a bus ticket. When you get out, they don't even it. give you that. All right, fellas, we got to get ready to wrap it up. Uh, we do have the uh, abolitionists, and I know we're featuring Frederick Douglass. Um, Johanna, you want to... Uh, Leave us with some thoughts on Frederick Douglass and um, why we are honoring him because of, you know, so-called uh, 150th anniversary of the 13th Amendment passage of that fraud, fraudulent document. Absolutely. <clears throat> Myself, uh, Max has spoken on it many times and even written on it as well. His uh, his uh, oratory on the, uh, the emancipation being a stupendous fraud is something that definitely eye-opening about the time uh, that he lived in and being one of the, the only ones that was vocal. I mean, they didn't open the National Press Club for him to go out and tell nobody about that when it was going down. 
Uh oh. That's the uh that's the that's the video from the from the website, I'm sorry. But at any rate, yes, he was one of the only ones, the only voices that spoke out when he went on his southern tour, uh and I believe Mass could speak on this, you know, with even more uh, uh clarity and, and the history understood, you know, being able to convey that. He went on his southern tour and saw the condition of living that black folks were still in several years after the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, which he celebrated, you know, as, as innocently and as ignorantly as everybody else that thought that there was some victory there. Uh, but when he saw what was really going on and saw everything that we report on this program as far as uh, the jails, black codes, yeah. yes, black codes, legislation, uh, jailing black folks, the, the immediate uh, ramping up of the uh, prison population with black people. I mean, during this time, uh, when he made that statement about the stupendous fraud of the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, 1890 was the first census um, in, you know, in with the publication of the 1890 census, the prison statistics for the first time became the basis of the uh, national discussion about black people as a distinct group as as relates to criminality because by the 1890 census they actually had the first numbers that they could put up about what had happened after the emancipation when jailing black people and there's your oh there's your back then they was talking about black on black crime that's how they was explaining it oh it ain't it ain't yep. it ain't racist whites passing a bunch of bs logs and whatnot right. no right. these are criminals and see now they off the plantation without supervision and now, look, they are committing barbaric acts against each other. That explains yep. it, black-on-black black crime. So this brother was able to document that and speak on it with his, you know, typical fiery truth. He uh, died in 1895, am I correct? Uh, yes, so just yes. a few years after that census, he was able to see what, you know, came of the Emancipation Proclamation. And here we just had last week uh, the 150th anniversary, if you will, of that legislation. And then, of course, the subsequent or uh, uh, all of the 50 states uh, ratifying that information as well. And, 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 and indeed, and in fact, implementing slavery in every state where slavery had not previously existed when they ratified that legislation. States like Kansas, where I'm born and raised, uh, known as the free state, rock chalk Jayhawk. Don't cross this line with that slavery. Well, here's the 13th Amendment. We ratify it, and uh, now we got slavery. So, welcome to America. <laughs> wow. If you have not read or heard, uh, the I denounced the so-called emancipation as a stupendous fraud. It should be at the top of your list of things to do. Yes, yeah, on YouTube. I provided the link. A new abolitionist radio. We are the first to ever put it in recording uh, to recite it on tape, so you can see it there, that historical thing in its entirety. And it was said to be his greatest speech ever, but it's also one of those speeches that you never hear of because it went con contrary to what is being presented to us today. I know. I've actually walked in his footsteps and traveled throughout North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia as he did to see the same things that he saw. And uh, what was happening in 1888 when he gave his speech on the anniversary of the emancipation is occurring today in 2015. Right. And I gave a similar speech. I gave a similar speech when they held that fraudulent ceremony in Washington, D.C., with President Obama giving this horrendous speech about 
freedom in, in black folks in America. And, and obviously, he didn't know a thing about what he was talking about. Well, it was more sinister than that because he's a constitutional lawyer. He knows that slavery was never abolished. And so, but yet he still got up there and fixed his mouth to tell those lies that slavery somehow was abolished in 1865. Listen, guys, uh, we got to run. Um, some quick last comments. Uh, my last comments to the listeners. If you're not a new abolitionist by now and you've listened to this program and you come to the realization that 21st century slavery and human trafficking still exists, that uh, the 13th Amendment did not abolish slavery and is still being practiced today. And, and, and so you can learn all of that and not be an abolitionist. Well, all I got to say is I see you on the battlefield. Peace to the abolitionists and death to the oppressors. Remember that abolition is the reason for a revolution. So we can finally know peace. 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 Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the beast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff, horn, and pedo forms begin to get...